Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. Today, we're going to be discussing the connection between the individual soul and spiritual reality. We'll be discussing spiritual awakening and what it means to become more fully human. I'm delighted to have Sheikh Kabir Helminski as my guest today. Kabir is an author of several books, including the book we're discussing today, The Mysterian, Rumi and the Secret of Becoming Fully Human. Kabir Helminski is also the translator of numerous books of Sufi literature, especially Rumi. He's the co-director, along with his wife, Camille Helminski, of the Threshold Society, a nonprofit organization dedicated to sharing the knowledge and practice of Sufism. As the publisher of Threshold Books for some 20 years, he has largely been responsible for making Rumi the most widely read poet of our time. Kabir's translations of Rumi are among the most popular and respected for their literary faithfulness and beauty. Kabir Halminski is a respected teacher, <clears throat> a sheikh of the Mevlevi order, which traces back to Rumi. You can find out more about Kabir Halminski and the Threshold Society at their website, sufism.org. It's F-U-S-U-F-I-S-M.org, sufism.org. He, they are also active on Facebook and Instagram at Threshold Society. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, Kabir Helminski. I'm, I'm really delighted to have you return to the podcast today. Thank you so much, Laura. Happy to be here. So before we begin our dialogue about Rumi and the essence of being human, let's start with a moment of contemplation. Let's begin just by bringing ourselves right here and right now. So let's begin by bringing our attention to our body, just feeling our body in space, whatever we're doing, whether we're sitting or standing, walking, driving, just feeling our body in space and in particular feeling those surfaces that support our weight. And now turning our attention to the breath and just noticing as we take a fully conscious breath on the next inhale and exhale. Just staying with the breath, just noticing the natural flow, each inhale and each exhale. Feeling the cool air in the nostrils on the inhale. And feeling the change in the temperature. Now the air has been warmed. You can feel it as it passes out. And as we rest here, right where we are, here's something to contemplate from Yogacharya Ellen 
Grace O'Brien, the Yoga Hour's founder and spiritual director, from her book, Living for the Sake of the Soul. When things do not go our way, the ego wants to curse, but the soul recognizes an opportunity to bless. Train your mind to look for the good, to look for truth and for possibility. The essential spiritual law is hold to the one, seek only truth, see God in all that is. Doing this, we can recognize the angels of opportunity that begin gathering on our doorstep. Doing this, we can recognize the angels of opportunity that begin gathering on our doorstep. Om. Once again, welcome to the Yoga Hour, Kabir Helminski. I'm really delighted you could join me today on the Yoga Hour to discuss your new book, The Mysterian, Rumi and the Secret of Becoming Fully Human. In the preface, you write, the themes in this book are focused around the soul in its relationship to the divine. The Mysterian represents the intersection of the soul with the divine. This is just one possible approach to the vast corpus of Rumi. Just reading that, I, I really love this, this intersection that you describe, this focus on the intersection of the soul with the divine, because to me, this is also the focus of yoga. You have been translating, studying, and writing about Rumi for, for many years. Why did you make the, the focus of the book, this focus on the mysterian, the intersection of the soul and the divine? Well, thank you for that introduction, Laurel. I focused on this concept of the mysterian because it's most important truth we believe for the human being to realize mm -hmm. that in fact there is this <clears throat> point of intersection with the divine intelligence, guidance, and love. And that connection is intimate, profoundly important that the divine can be accessed within each of us. Mm. Um, and we do that in a myriad of ways, but of course, essential is a certain ability to direct our attention to that in us which precedes thought and desires, emotions, we call it the essential self. Mm -hmm. You might call it the witnessing self. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not everybody is familiar with this or comfortable with this or can access this easily. But with training, particularly through meditation and meditative disciplines of various kinds, we begin to discover that essential self, which is our fundamental consciousness, and a fundamental sense of I-ness, an I-ness that's not identified <clears throat> with our 
social identity, ethnicity, gender, etc. So Rumi is a genius of spirituality, mm. not only one of the greatest poets that humanity has ever known, but also someone who um, whose teaching, whose wisdom represents a profoundly systematic understanding of the human being and what our possibilities are. Most people, if they know Rumi in our culture today, um, you know, there are some beautiful quotes that are floating around and known by many people. And little snippets of this and that. But if one were to dive into the study of Rumi and become familiar with his magnum opus, which is called the Mesnavi or Mathnawi, six volumes of stories, wow. poems, prayers, uh, all of which are reminding us of one fundamental truth, mm-hmm. namely, that we live in a unified reality and that the divine has is the bottom line of that reality. The divine mercy and generosity and beauty and love is what it all comes down to, despite appearances. Mm. So he calls his work uh, the workshop of unity, mm. meaning all of his poetry is the workshop of unity. And if you see, if you think you see anything else in it, uh, you know, don't be fooled. It's all about the fact that we live in this oneness. We've been given our individuality to discover this oneness. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'll pause there. I could save a lot more, but <laughs> I know you've prepared a uh, you prepared beautifully for this. When, oh, well, when thank you. Said you. In your notes. I was touched at how much work you put into this. Yes, I, I must credit uh, my team. Really, it really helps me. Um, one of the assistant producers, you know, was really oh, instrumental in writing good. it. Although I, I, I did some editing, but it, it, it really is her work. So later in the preface of the book, you write, "Rumi is timeless because his primary subject is the soul's relationship with the divine. His genius." is that he uses every aspect of our lives to reveal the beauty, generosity, and purposefulness of existence. His writings show the interconnected nature of the human and spiritual realms. I just, I'm so struck. First of all, your writing is so beautiful. And then just, you know, how you put things was just, was very, very um, attractive to me. And of course, you mentioned it, everything, uh, and that Rumi writes is about unity. Well, that's the meaning of the word, you know, yoga, you know, the Sanskrit word that means oneness, you know, union, unity. So I was very struck as I was reading the, your book at how the principles are just, you know, very, very, um, they echo each other, you know, very, very closely. And I, that's one of the things I really enjoyed about reading it. For listeners who may not be familiar with Rumi, would you describe a bit about who he was and when he lived? Yes. Uh, Rumi lived in what is today Turkey. He settled in a city called Konya in the 13th century. 
His family had emigrated from Balkh, which is in, would be in Afghanistan today, at the time of the uh, Mongol, uh, you know, conquests, etc. They became refugees and they moved to Konya, which was a haven of peace and civilization. And Rumi is not unique in this tradition. In a way, he's the culmination of, at that time, six or so centuries of uh, Islamic civilization. He represents a flowering of, of uh, a spirituality that began with Prophet Muhammad and was continued through a line of Sufis and an esoteric tradition that uh, <clears throat> was very alive and that had many uh, expressions and in, in, in independent lineages. And so his, I would say, his what is unique about Rumi is the depth, breadth, beauty of his articulation mm. of this <clears throat> divine reality. And he was able to capture often in, in very simple images and metaphors, some very, very deep truths. Mm -hmm. And sometimes his work seems very challenging because it's so rich and uh, subtle and nuanced. And at other times, it's so incredibly simple that a child could understand it. Let me give you an example, a very short uh, passage. Water says to the dirty one, come. And the dirty one says, but I'm so ashamed. Mm. Water says, but how will you become clean without me? Mm. Okay. So obviously, there's a lot packed into that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, well. And it I expresses our the human dilemma, you know, when whenever we are resistant to the divine we're fighting it we don't want surrender or submission we're just on our own ego trip uh and yet we turn away from what we most need mm -hmm. and what we most deeply want mm -hmm. what I, I love about about rumi and sacred poetry in general is just oh just has a way of touching your heart so directly you know just kind of goes like an arrow you know um just very sometimes almost just takes your breath away you know how um in the in the course he's writing and writing about the one it's one that you can't really describe in words and yet you know poetry has a, a more direct way i think of 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 uh ex, you know of capturing that uh, essence so you write the land of reality is not other than the world we live in but it takes the awakening of spiritual perception to see it and know it the sacred interpenetrates existence and yet mysteriously goes unperceived. A life that does not lead to an increasing awareness of the sacred is a life without reality, shallow and superficial. 
there are potentially many paths that lead ultimately to a perception of the beauty and love inherent in the universe. I really appreciated your this point that the sacred interpenetrates reality, you know, where we are all right now, and it often goes unperceived. And, and I love the way that you put that a life that does not lead to an increasing awareness of the sacred is a life without reality, which seems to me to be related to your subtitle Rumi and the secret of becoming fully human. Would you say more about that subtitle? Yes, the human being what an extraordinary phenomenon. Mm. For us, it's the, the human being is the ripened fruit on the tree of existence. And <clears throat> it is the culmination of the uh, of conscious love expressing itself within existence. So in Sufism, the goal of our spiritual practice, the goal of life is to be moved toward becoming a mature and complete human being. And we're only completed through a relationship with the divine. So our true humanness is discovered in this intimate, relationship with the divine in that relationship we realize that everything that is most valuable in human life is invisible mm. for example love is invisible mm -hmm. generosity may have its gestures but general the spirit of generosity is invisible um, forgiveness is invisible. The beauties of friendship and love and relationship are invisible, even though, yes, they have outward expressions, but we know there's a difference between appearance and reality. You can act like you're loving and your heart might be cold. So it's always the inner reality that uh, is, 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 the, is the reality. Um, so this I use the word sacred too I, I think the word sacred is an important word in our time to unify people of different temperaments and beliefs we can even talk to somebody who may believe they're an atheist mm -hmm. and we can ask them the question is anything sacred to you? Mm. You know, it might be nature. It might be a family. It might be a relationship. It might be something as elusive as integrity. Mm. So when we pose this question to somebody who would claim to be an absolute materialist, we point to the fact that, no, it's not the material stuff that matters, really. It is something invisible that the heart knows. Mathematics is not going to prove it. Empirical science is not going to prove it. But your consciousness is in that realm. And your consciousness, and particularly your heart, 
meaning your spiritual heart, uh, knows what is truly of value. Mm -hmm. So our work as human beings is really work on the heart, purification of the heart, the awakening of the heart, so that with the heart aware, awake, and healthy, we can perceive what is truly of value. Okay, um, so this is a, a kind of bridge, you know, across traditions, even across different, very different temperaments and mentalities to come to a common principle. And let's meet in that common principle of, of what is truly a value. Mm. And what will we value, for instance, at the moment of death? we look back at our lives. Mm -hmm. So let's remember death. Let's know that its drumbeat is always there, however distant. And through the remembrance of death, to awaken to life. Mm -hmm. Our possibilities here. Mm -hmm. um, so the way in to the Mysterion it's possible for anyone. It doesn't depend on a theology, although it is a kind of theology. It's a proposal, but we don't propose this. We don't make this proposal in order for someone to believe it. We don't need necessarily more beliefs, but we can propose it as a as something to be tested, yeah. something to be verified. Mm -hmm. And of course, the verification of this reality, it's not always a simple matter. It may not be an instantaneous realization, but we can pretty much guarantee, I mean, in all in our true authentic spiritual traditions, if you do the work, if you do the practices, you're going to move closer to that reality and it's going to become known to us in our own inner experience as the inner world opens up mm -hmm. and as we come to know ourselves, not as our social identity, not as our thoughts and programs and conditioning, but as that essential self, which is truly sees and is connected to the heart and truly knows directly what is of value. And then we find out, maybe we realize that, for example, can I love? Well, I, maybe, but do I create that love or do I draw that love from an infinite source? Mm. Everything that is beautiful, desirable, valuable, we can say is sourced in the divine. Can I forgive? Mm. No. I, I can't forgive at will. But there are times when, even under the most painful circumstances, I find a forgiveness sourced in the divine, and forgiveness becomes possible. Okay. Can I claim to be generous? You know, maybe my ego self doesn't want to be very generous. But then something moves me, and I find that there's a generosity sourced in the divine. So everything that's of value, our consciousness, our love, our virtues, 
we would say in Sufism that all of these qualities are sourced with the divine, and that's why we are continually asking the help of the divine. Mm. Uh, this is our worship, this is our prayer, uh, to make it possible, make it possible for me not to be asleep and heedless. Mm. Uh, oh, my sustainer, mm. awaken in me true consciousness, awaken in me true conscience. Um, I know my capacities for this are very feeble, so I call upon you, you are my source, you are my guide, you are my beloved, you are the creative power of the universe. I need you. Mm -hmm. I can't do this by myself. Help me to be a conscious human being as I was designed to be and help me to remember you with my heart. Mm -hmm. This is the fundamental practice of our tradition. It's the fundamental uh, practice of Islam, properly understood. Mm -hmm. Quran says, the human heart is created restless, but indeed, in the remembrance of God, hearts find tranquility. Mm -hmm. For me, that's one of the most, maybe the most powerful truth mm -hmm. I could point to, that in the remembrance of God, hearts find tranquility. Mm -hmm. and that remembrance is not thinking, it's not merely thinking. It is the remembrance is a capacity of the heart to open up to the divine presence right now mm -hmm. and to rest in that presence simply by, you know, in your tradition and in ours, the divine name is all important. Mm. It takes us there. You may say Om, we say who, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, and we say Allah, and Allah for us is that beautiful ah sound. It opens, you know, the heart's what you call the heart center, and we call it the heart. <laughs> yeah. So these are capacities of the human being that um, are easy to demonstrate in a way, especially when we're with people of like mind and we're in an atmosphere of grace. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the other um, similarities that I noted in, in reading the book, and you talk about uh, the ego, the ego sense and this false ego sense that we have. And in yoga, um, that's the first of kind of the, the, the biggest um, mistakes, the great mistake you know, is mistaking that that um, small self, that small ego self is who we are. It's called avidya, or it's kind of like lacking knowledge, lacking knowledge of, you know, of the truth. Yes. Um, anyway, I was just struck that 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 was so similar. And you spend, you know, you spend some time talking about that both on a personal level, and then on a social level, you know, about what's going on with us right now. Did you did you want to say any more about either of those? This, this is a very important subject. Um, what do we do with the I? And what does the ego have any role in human life? Can it be annihilated? Can it be erased? And let me explain how we view how we view this in Sufism. We have something like a map. And one version of this map 
there are seven stages of the refinement of the self or ego. And we have in the Arabic and other related languages like Turkish and Farsi, we have a word called nafs. And nafs means self. Mm -hmm. On one level, it means self. It also means ego. So when we say you're acting from your nafs, it means you're acting from your ego. But at the same time, this word has seven levels of refinement. You might say of vibrational refinement. So let me just run through this map and say that there is always a some sense of I-ness. The spiritual journey is a journey through these different levels of I-ness, from the lower to the higher, from the coarse to the fine, uh, from the enslaved to the free. Mm. So at the lowest level, it's called nafsamara in Arabic, the compulsive self, the obsessive self. When the self is just in a state of addiction, negativity, inner slavery. And any of us can fall back to that level triggered by certain things. So this map is not absolute and, and uh, we may fluctuate among these levels. But the I the sense of I-ness at that level, it's the I as I-ness is imprisoned. It's its a painful situation, whether you fully recognize how painful it is or not, but it is, it is, uh, <clears throat> it is slavery mm. and slavery to negativity and, um, and desires and compulsions and obsessions, which are also painful. <laughs> They're desires that can be painful. The next level is called nafsloama. It means the remorseful self or the self of conscience. At the second stage, the self, your Inus, begins to awaken. It begins to see its addictions. It begins to see its slavery. It may not be able to do very much about it, but it's beginning to see it and recognize that, hmm, yes, uh, not good. Uh, and need help. That's the second stage, the remorseful self. I was just struck uh, remembering what the poem that you said earlier. That's the dirty self. That's like, no, I'm yeah. too, I'm too dirty. Don't, I can't. Yes, the dirty one says. Uh, <laughs> you know, Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> doesn't know how to become clean or even want to become clean necessarily. Mm. So the third stage is called the inspired self, nafsa mulhama, inspired as to right and wrong, as to the positive and the negative. At this third stage, the battle, you might say, for goodness, for becoming a reasonable, decent human being is won when the positive more or less prevails over the negative. So this is a, this is a level of selfhood that is actually represents salvation in ordinary religious terms. But in this map, it's only stage three. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So you're a good person. Uh, you know, you can be relied upon. You're not perfect, but you basically choose the good more than you choose the negative. However, you're not yet awake. Mm. Okay. So the fourth stage, um, 
is the stage of, uh, I'll give you the Arabic, nafsal mutmaina, and it's a, it's literally means the tranquil self, but its significance is that you've now moved to a level that we call presence. Presence is beginning to awaken in you, um, mindfulness, consciousness. There's now a perspective on the identifications of the old self. There's a beginning of, of escaping from heedlessness and, and slowly building that witnessing self. So this is where a lot of the spiritual journey takes place. This is the difference between mainstream religion mm. at level three and the beginning of the path, the mm. spiritual path. Spiritual path's not for everybody. You have to choose it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you can be born into re your religion, but if your religion has a spiritual path, and not all of them uh, have a, e e an obviously available spiritual path, certainly Hinduism does, Buddhism does, Islam does. Some religions you have to search a little harder to find it. It's there. But, okay, the spiritual path begins at level four, and it's the birth of presence, the birth of a different quality of I. Mm. The I that is present is the I of the essential self, which we referred to earlier. Okay, There's still I-ness. It's always a sense of I-ness. Um, the fifth stage is when and let me just emphasize the fourth stage can be a long that can be a long journey <laughs> uh, it can be a lifetime yes, yes. But the fifth stage is when yourself comes into what we would call intimacy with mm -hmm. the divine the intimate meeting with the divine we don't we would never say we become god we could not talk that way there's always even when you merge into that intimacy well Yes, there is an experience where um, you so you merge so completely into the divine that you lose a sense of self. Mm -hmm. But this is temporary. This is a state. Uh, it's a beautiful state. And once you've experienced that, you're you're never the same. Mm -hmm. You always have that reference point of your absolute intimacy, your union, communion with the divine so that's the fifth state it's it's um that's in you might say loosely speaking enlightenment mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um we're careful with this word enlightenment we don't make too much of it you know and and it can become um, a distraction but nevertheless at that fifth stage you've come to know as I said before, that everything that's of value in us is sourced in the divine. And we rely upon the divine for everything good and beautiful and true. And we experience that union in worship. We experience that union uh, at least a little bit in the ritual prayer when our foreheads touch the ground in prostration. But we don't stay in that state of absolute union because it's necessary to return to this world of world at war 
where even the elements are at war with each other, earth, fire, water, air, everything, everything is in a kind of chaos and commotion and challenges and struggles and pain and joy and, and sorrow and happiness, we voluntarily, consciously return to the world. But once again, with an even more refined sense of I-ness because we've now agreed to return to the theater of divine manifestation that we call life with remembrance, with that reference point, that unforgettable reference point that we know we are not separate mm -hmm. from God. Mm -hmm. And we're here with courage. We're here with sacrifice. We're here to do the work. We're here to serve. Mm -hmm. And there's a quality of I there, but it's not, it's an I that's really free. Think of all everything that it's free of. It's free of self-concept. It's free of, you know, uh, conditionings of family and culture and ethnicity. Uh, we've broken beyond the bounds of that. And uh, we've broken beyond the limitations of what we believed was our religion and, and origins. And now we're in a different space. That doesn't mean we've left behind the beauties of revelation, the beauties of the sacred texts, the beauty of the great beings and prophets and masters and saints. We, they're all with us and they're all part of what we're carrying. At this sixth stage, it's the Buddhists might call this the bodhisattva stage. Okay. You willingly, ret willingly return. You don't dwell. You don't cling to enlightenment. Mm -hmm. You come back into the world. And the seventh stage is a sort of hypothetical state of purification of the heart and purification of the self, where you could be virtually anonymous. Don't expect the world to put you on a throne of enlightenment. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a state of entitlement or prestige. In fact, uh, you're more willing to accept ordinariness, to be invisible. And so many of God's saints are invisible. Mm -hmm. We won't necessarily suspect who they are. Mm -hmm. and they're not necessarily the religious and spiritual leaders of the world either. Right. That's a whole nother game that people play. Yeah. Okay. So the seventh stage is that I almost want to say hypothetical state of nafsa sathya, the purified self. Mm. And so the important thing here is that there's always a sense of I-ness. But at that highest level, my sense of I-ness, I see it in you as I discover it in me. Mm-hmm. I see that it has, in a certain sense, while individuated, it has no boundaries. And we see we see the beloved in each other. Mm -hmm. And um, yes, we see the divine presence in all of life. And when we realize something very important, you know, yes, we do talk about the, all these different stages, and there are what you might call an elect among humanity who have made this journey. But being 
among those who have made this journey really doesn't, it strips you of any ego importance or defensiveness or need to be recognized. And it strips you of any judgment of others because then you realize that every being right down to so the psychopaths of the world are manifesting the divine according to their capacity, their proclivity, their particular endowment, and each is on a journey of self-realization, and all of it is in the divine school. Mm -hmm. Every soul is learning, often in painful ways, yeah. what it means to turn away from divine reality. Uh, and with what that, it turn. Yes. And with that, I just wanted to remind listeners uh, today on the Yoga Hour, my guest is Kabir Helminski, author of the book we're discussing today, The Mysterian Rumi and the Secret of Becoming Fully Human. You can find out more about Kabir Helminski and his work at the website sufism.org. Sufism Org. This link will be on our website at theyogahour.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us via that website, theyogahour.com, where you can also sign up for our mailing list. So I wanted to turn, we've been talking about the ego, <clears throat> and, um, and we were thinking the team um, was kind of contrasting these two different uh, sort of stories um, for the in the from the yoga perspective, there's a te teaching in the Katha Upanishad that describes the control of the ego. Uh, the Upanishads being one of the foundational scriptures for the teachings of of yoga. So this, you know, from the uh, story or myth from the yoga perspective, says that we are the soul riding in the chariot, which is the body. The Lord of the chariot is our higher true self. The charioteer is our discriminating intellect, and the mind is the reins. But the sense of horses are the senses. And so you can see how the chariot can get totally pulled off course. We can let our discriminating intellect um, ignore the lord of the chariot, let the horses run amok, chasing selfish desires, or we can use that discriminating intellect in the mind the reins to control where the horses go and how and how they go. Um, so we have control over our lives. And you had another metaphor that you used in the book to describe the same process of trying to control a ship on the ocean. So I thought it would be kind of fun to just, you know, hear those both. So would you describe that metaphor for our listeners? Yes. Well, first of all, yes, the description of the, the horse, the chariot, horses and the chariot charioteer makes perfect sense to us and it's a great teaching model i gave the example of of a ship on the ocean the ship being our fragile identity our self-constructed identity uh that you know believes in its own autonomy and will you might say and um the ocean, on the other hand, is, well, to put it simply, if you've never dove into the ocean, <laughs> um, you don't know the ocean. And the ship 
is not in control of the ocean and the ocean is something vast. But the ocean invites us. There's actually, Rumi has a beautiful poem. It goes like this. Listen, O drop. Give yourself up without regret. And, they are, and in the arms of the sea, be secure. Mm. Listen, O drop. Do yourself this honor. Give yourself up. Do yourself this honor. And in the arms of the sea, be secure. Who indeed so be so fortunate? Mm. An ocean wooing a drop? In God's name, in God's name, give a drop and take this sea full of pearls. Mm. So we are not, on the one hand, Rumi says this, on the other hand, elsewhere we understand that uh, we are not the drop that's going to be dissolved in the ocean. We are the drop that contains the ocean. We are the drop that contains the ocean this is the holographic reality, which was understood centuries ago by the mystics. And so we can know the ocean within ourselves. But there's a beautiful, uh, I think one of the most beautiful metaphors of describing our relationship to the divine reality is this in a poem that we call the Ruvi which is just an excerpt from his sixth volume, Mesnevi. And before reading this, I wanted to say that the charioteer, in order to control the senses, the horses, in order to drive the chariot, ultimately it needs something mysterious, which we'll call love that love finally rules, that the ego will never submit. It's smarter than your intelligence. It's stronger than your will. Mm. It will only surrender to love and nothing else. Mm. Okay. So listen to this. At breakfast tea, a beloved asked her lover, who do you love more? yourself or me? Mm -hmm. Pause, picture yourself. Beloved asked her lover, who do you love more, yourself or me? Mm -hmm. And the lover says, and by the way, the lover is an incredible archetype of the spiritual uh, self. The lover says, from my head to my foot, I've become you. Mm -hmm. Nothing remains of me but my name. You have your wish. Only you exist. I've disappeared like a drop of vinegar in an ocean of honey. And then Rumi says, now he's going to play on the metaphor of a stone versus a gem. A stone versus a ruby. A stone which has become a ruby is filled with the qualities of the sun no stoniness remains in it. If it loves itself, it is loving the sun. Mm. And if it loves the sun, 
it is loving itself. There's no difference between these two loves. Mm. The idea here is this an old medieval belief that deep in the bowels of the earth, you know, uh, granite and coal are being transformed through the radiations of a spiritual sun. He says, before the sun becomes the ruby, I'm sorry, before the stone becomes the ruby, it is its own enemy. Not one, but two exist. The stone is dark and blind to daylight. You got that? Stone it's opaque. It resists light. It doesn't reflect any light. If it loves itself, that's unfaithfulness. It intensely resists the sun. If it says, I, it's all darkness. A pharaoh claims divinity and is brought low. The, the mystic says the same and is saved. One eye is cursed. Another eye is blessed. Yeah. One eye is a stone. Another eye is a crystal. One, an enemy of the light, the other a reflector of it. In its inmost consciousness, not through any doctrine, it is one with the light. Remember the map we gave of the transformation of I-ness through all those levels? So now we're talking about the stone, stoniness being transformed into rubiness. Mm. So then Rumi says, work on your stony qualities to become resplendent like the ruby. Practice self-denial and accept difficulty. Mm. Always see infinite life in letting the ego die. Mm. Your stoniness will decrease. Your ruby nature will grow. The signs of self-preoccupation will leave your body and ecstasy will take you over. Mm. Become all hearing like an ear and gain a ruby earring. Dig a well in the earth of this body, or even before the well is dug, let God draw the water up. Mm -hmm. Be always at work scraping the dirt from the well. To everyone who suffers, perseverance brings good fortune. Mm -hmm. The prophet Muhammad has said that each prostration of prayer is a knock on heaven's door. When anyone continues to knock, felicity shows its smiling face. So, <clears throat> that's Rumi describing this relationship of the sun and our stoniness, mm -hmm. how the stoniness, the self, is transformed right. into that ruby. That's right. Beautiful. I was moved when I read at the end of the book, you write, we are eternal spirit created by love to know love in every condition of this life. Every circumstance of life is a step on that journey. Again, so reminiscent of the, of the teachings of yoga. Did you want to say more about that? It was just so beautiful. We are eternal spirit created by love to know love in every condition of this life. Yes. In reality, the eternal spirit is so close to us 
as spirit manifests out of, you might say, out of the divine, from the divine source. And it comes in our direction. We experience it as love. So what if there were a methodology that was based on a cosmic knowledge of love? What if our task in life was to solve our problems with love mm. rather than anger or violence? What if instead of saying, you must love, every religion says you must love, what if we were to say something a little gentler like, live in the vibration of love? Imagine. Love is not something to be attained. It is the reality, the environment that we're already living in. Mm. Live in the vibration of love. Solve your problems with love. Know that the ego will not surrender to anything but love. Become a servant of love. Mm. There's a beautiful poem, and I know we're very close to finishing here, but I think we have time for this. Sure. Rumi says, love is reckless, not reason. Reason seeks a prophet, but love comes, comes on strong, consuming herself unabashed. Mm. Yet in the midst of suffering, Love is hard-surfaced and straightforward like a millstone. Mm. God gave us being without cause. Mm. Without cause, give it back again. Gambling yourself away is beyond any religion. Religion seeks grace and favor, avoids sin and penalties. But those who gamble these away are God's favorites. Mm -hmm. For they neither put God to the test nor knock at the door of gain and loss. Love is reckless. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Well, unbelievably, we've come to the close of the program. I always like to give guests an opportunity to leave some words of encouragement or inspiration with our listeners. What what words would you like to leave with our listeners? Not not that what you've said so far hasn't been inspiring because it has been, but give me one more chance. <laughs> we were created and designed to know the true dimensions of divine generosity, intelligence, beauty, and love. Mm. And this is the purpose of our human life. And you were designed for it. So search, mm. pray, ask help of that infinite source, and you will be blessed. Mm. Mm. Thank you. 
You've been listening to The Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of the show. My guest today has been Kabir Helminski. He is a translator of Rumi, a, a sheikh of the Sufi Mevlevi order, which traces its roots to Rumi. He's also the author of the book we've been discussing today, The Mysterian, Rumi and the Secret to Becoming Fully Human. You can find out more about Kabir Helminski and his work at the website sufism.org. Thank you so much, Kabir Helminski, for joining me today on the Yoga Hour. Thank you, Laura. Thank you for having me. For listeners, we hope you'll join us for the many online programs offered by the sponsor of this program, the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. There's daily online meditation in the morning at 6.30, from 6.30 to 7.30, that's Pacific time, in the afternoon at 4 p.m., 4 to 4.30, and on Monday evenings at 7.30 p.m. Again, all those times are Pacific time. There's also a Sunday satsang. Satsang is a Sanskrit word meaning a gathering of truth seekers that happens at 10 a.m. Pacific each week. Another podcast that might be of interest to listeners of this program is the Kriya Yoga Today podcast with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, which you can find through the CSE website, csecenter.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, the Kriya Yoga Today podcast. You can find out more about these and many other classes and events at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment by going to that website, csecenter.org. Join us next time on the Yoga Hour when my guest will be founder and spiritual director of the Yoga Hour, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien. We will be discussing meditation, the benefits of a regular meditation practice, and the four steps we can take to be able to meditate with ease. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Remember, you can subscribe to the Yoga Hour wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, assistant producers Anne Hayes, Mickey Coronado, Christine Sote, and Lauren Leidinger. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now. Mm -hmm.